Welcome to Truth for Transformation with Timothy Brown. Timothy is the lead pastor of Arden First Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. Our mission is to lead ordinary people into extraordinary life in Christ. We pray that today's message inspires you to live an extraordinary life in Jesus Christ. Check out our website for more inspiring resources, ArdenFBC.com. Now, here's today's message from Pastor Timothy Brown. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Kevin O'Connor. Um, for those of you who don't know who I am, I typically, my wife Carol and I hang out at the, we hang out at the 9 o'clock service, man. We like the chill that, that happens there. So we've had enough excitement in our lives. So, wow, what a morning. What an incredible move that God is doing. I mean, I appreciate so much what Pastor Joe said about what's going on at Asbury because uh, I've been following it along as I'm sure many of you have as well. And the thing that, the thing about, the thing about, from my perspective, the thing that I've been praying for for the last 10 years has been, we all want revival, right? I mean, we want to see God do a great move in our, in, in our world, in, in our, uh, you know, in our, in where we live. But I think the most important thing, and this is something that the Holy Spirit's placed on my heart and has for a while, is before any of that can happen, before we can have a revival, um, I believe we have to have reformation within the church. I believe that the move of God has to be grasped and fully implemented within the church. We have to, we have to, we have to find ourselves back to a place where we are not only acknowledging, but seeking to fulfill the purpose that God has given the church, which is to do exactly what's going on, which is to um, make disciples, which is to reach people with the love in the grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And to see, to see it happen, especially for me personally, at a place like Asbury, I'm, uh, some of you may know, I'm, I'm, I'm an ordained Wesleyan pastor. And Asbury Seminary, which is right across the street from Asbury College and Asbury University, where all this is happening, is, uh, is, has been a, 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 a standard uh, seminary for guys like me. And, and, and Methodists as well. And to see, all places, to see God move in a place like that has just been an incredible thing to see. I mean, it's just been personally fulfilling. I've had several friends of mine that are, that are, that are graduates from there. And they're just so touched by the move that God is doing and that, that perhaps a great revival and reformation would begin at a place like that to me is just, uh, just an incredible blessing. So, anyway, good morning again. As I was preparing for this message, I came across a story that I want to share with you. Um, it's about an individual that perhaps many of us know. His name is William Lane Craig. William Lane Craig is one of the great Christian apologists, but he's, he's, he's a philosopher. He's way more than that. He's a philosopher, a scientist, and just a right smart feller and very articulate. Um, well, anyway, the Chronicle of Higher Education did an article about him some years back. And uh, they called they called him, they gave him this moniker of Christian philosophy's boldest apostle. I've heard him referred to as the happy crusader. Um, guys, just if you ever hear him talk, he's always got a smile on his face. He's always 
you know, just always just a, I don't want to say a happy guy, but a joyous guy. The, the joy of the Lord is about him whenever you hear. And even if you read his books, it's the same way. Well, Craig has traveled the world, and what he's done is he's debated many of the world's most articulate atheists. And one in particular, another guy you may have heard of, you see him on TV a lot, his name is Sam Harris. Not only is he a, a, not only is he a, a famous atheist and humanist, he's, once again, a right smart feller himself in his own way. And he said this about Craig. He said, Craig is the one Christian apologist who seems to have put the fear of God into many of my fellow atheists. I find that deliciously ironic, don't you? But the story of how Craig became a brilliant scholar and debater reveals how God works behind the scenes in the midst of our weaknesses and limitations. From birth, he has suffered from a malady known as Charcot-Marie-Tooth Syndrome. It's a neuromuscular disease that causes atrophies in the extremities. He walks with a slight limp, and his hands often look like they're grasping for an invisible object. He shares a story growing up, you know, that he couldn't run normally from basically from what happened to him when he was, you know, with, with this particular disease that he had to deal with. And he says this, he said, my boyhood was difficult. And he pauses and says, children can be very cruel. Well, since varsity sports weren't an option, he joined the high school debate team. Now, initially, he wasn't interested in spiritual issues. He didn't join the debate team for any higher purpose or anything along that line. He joined the debate team because it seemed to be the thing to do at the time. And he wasn't interested in spiritual issues, but he started reading the Bible. And something happened to him that may have happened to many of us. I know this is the way it played out for me. He said that the Jesus that he found there took hold of him. Now, I don't know about you, but when I, I became a Christian in 1980, my wife Carol and I wrote a, wrote a small group Bible study and we accepted Christ together. And when I, in fact, Carol bought me my first Bible, now that I think of it. And as I was reading through the Gospels, as I was reading through the New Testament, and I looked and I read about Jesus, and I thought to myself, why have I not met this guy before? Why is it I have not, why is it that everybody who's tried to explain Jesus to me isn't like this? It isn't like the guy that I read in the Bible on my own. I don't know if any of you have experienced that, but I sure have. Maybe that was that way with Craig, and he said this, he said at this time, the moment he met the Jesus that made the difference in his life, he said this. He said, for me, it was a matter of question, or a question, I should say, of personal commitment. Was I prepared to follow this man? During college, he continued debating and searching for his calling. And not until years later, after establishing himself as a philosopher, did he start to debate and defend his faith in a public setting. And it came as a welcome surprise. He said, his, his thing is, and if you've ever heard him, like I said, if you've ever heard him talk, you think to yourself, wow. But he said to himself, you know what? No big deal. I was just thrilled to be able to use the debating skills that I have as a means of fulfilling the vision of sharing the gospel. Here's what I want us to see. At a time when Professor Craig was pursuing 
his passion for debate and philosophy, when his Christianity wasn't even on the table, God was at work behind the scenes, forming and revealing his purpose for him, to him. Which turned out to be using Craig's passion, his love to engage in debate, for his purpose. Let me share a personal story with you. As I just shared with you a moment ago, I became a follower of Christ in 1980. And uh, around 1986, I had a series of unfortunate events happen. My father got very, very sick, um, and I bought into some really bad theology. We won't get into, we won't get into, uh, I won't get into the details of that at the moment. If you want to, we'll have a cup of coffee, and uh, I'll be happy to share that with you. But I bought into some really bad theology, and when my father died. Um, I basically felt that God had double-crossed me, you know? And I basically said, okay, God, if that's the way you're going to treat me, color me gone. And for the next several years, I played the prodigal. Well, in 1986, I also started college. I was a late bloomer. That's another story, too. So I, like every everybody in the 80s that was going to school... I wanted to be an investment banker. That's what I went for. I was going to go. I was going to go. I went to business school. I was, I majored in finance and accounting. And man, I was going to be an investment banker. I was, I didn't necessarily need to go to New York, but there's, there was plenty of stuff in Pittsburgh, which is my hometown, where I could do that. It was a financial center in and of itself. So anyway, that's what I went to school for. But what I found was that as I started taking classes, the first thing I found out was that I hated accounting. I don't know how y'all accountants do it, man. I really don't. And I say that partially tongue-in-cheek and partially looking out of my right eye because my wife is an accountant. So I have deep admiration for her, and I shake my head every time. But anyway, um, so, but I, I, I started to get a love for, of all things, and some of you might think this is worse, for economics. And I had a teacher that was just dynamic and incredible and inspiring. And like I said, he was just a couple of years older than I was because I was an older student when I went to school. And I also found that what I started doing is I started tutoring because we needed to make some money. We had a family at home. My children were very young. They were two and one and a half or three and one and a half. And my daughter, my daughters were, were little and my wife was working and I needed to figure out a way to help make ends meet. So... That's, uh, that's what I did. So I tutored and I got money for it. And I, man, I just developed a deep love for teaching. So I decided, I, after discussing it with my wife, I decided that I wasn't going to major in, 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 in finance and accounting anymore. I was going to major in economics and I wanted to be, a, I wanted to be a college professor. I wanted to teach at a college level. So after I left, after I left, after I left and, and finished my bachelor's work, uh, bachelor's in business administration, I uh, went to West Virginia University and was in a Ph.D. program and was pursuing, you know, what, what I needed to do to become a college professor. And once again, some things happened that were unfortunate. Um, I was burnt out. There was any number of things I needed to make money for my family. And plus, the work was overwhelming. I had to leave the, pro- I had to leave the program. And it broke my heart because my passion, the thing that I really wanted to do, that I really felt that I really wanted to do was gone. 
And a funny thing happened several years later um, in, in God's indomitable way. He led me back to him. And I was fortunate that I was a part of a church that was, uh, that was, um, that was a, a church plant. It was just a few years old when I, when I found my way back to the Lord. And uh, I got to know the pastor. He became my mentor. Um, and he, he allowed me to start teaching classes at, at, at the church. And ultimately, I received the call from God to not just to become a pastor, but to become a church planner. And, uh, and I, I, I mean, the fact that I'm standing up here before you is, is a testament to, you know, God taking my passion and using it for his, his purpose. At the time... I was pursuing my passion for economics. It's funny how this worked. At the time that I was pursuing my passion for economics and teaching, God was at work forming and revealing his purpose for me, to me, which turned out to be using my passion for his purpose. Now, I'll never forget the first time that it dawned on me that I was getting to do the thing that I love the most as a service to God. It was one of the most exhilarating And at the same time, humbling experiences of my life. Now, if you've ever spent any time around me or spent any time with me, you'll hear me talk about the epic life. Epic has become an overused word, I believe, in today's vernacular. And it's unfortunate because it's the best description of what a life spent in pursuit of God's calling is all about. The epic life is lived, I believe, at the junction, at the crossroads, at the intersection, if you will, of passion and purpose. I believe with all that I am that God has an epic life planned for each and every one of us. But you know what the sad reality is? Many of us, perhaps even most of us, the overwhelming majority, I might say, will never live it out for various reasons. Now, I know a lot of really smart and talented people who spend a lifetime pursuing their passion but fall short of living in epic proportions because they didn't pursue it with a higher purpose in mind. These people who have attained great levels of success that the world would envy, but they would tell you, and they have told me, That it was all in vain because it was so temporal, so meaningless. I had a good friend of mine when I was at at, at our church in Pittsburgh. I had a good friend of mine. He's a couple of years older than I am. Wildly successful. Incredible in business. And he came up to me. I'll never forget it. He came up to me and he had kind of a distraught look on his face. And he said to me, Kevin, can can I talk to you for a minute? I said, sure. So I, you know, pulled him off the side. We were having a conversation. He said, let me ask you a question, straight up. He says, you know me. You know how much I love doing what I do, how, how, you know, God has blessed me and I've been, you know, very successful at what I do. But he looked me squarely in the eye and he said this, but is this all there is? There are so many people out there that have spent a lifetime pursuing something without the higher purpose in mind, that when they finally attain it, they look themselves in the mirror and say, I did that for this? 
To live an epic life is to commit your passion to discovering and living out the calling, the purpose that God has given you. Now let me stop here for just a minute and define the word epic. I like to use Webster, so let me, let me tell you what it is. It's going to be on the screen here. It says, an epic is a long poem. You might think, what does that have to do with what we're talking about? Well, let me finish. Typically one derived from ancient oral tradition, narrating the deeds and adventures of heroic legendary figures or the history of a nation. Many of us are familiar with many epic poems. The Odyssey, the Iliad by Homer, uh, the Gilgamesh epic. Okay, goes back into the Beowulf. Um, there's a, there's uh, Dante's Inferno. I mean, any number of these things. That and what they do, what these, what these, what these stories tell us is not only are these great stories of great individuals, but what they do is they they bring the transcendent in. Especially if you look at at the Gilgamesh epic. I mean, it's it's. It's, it's almost an allegory for, you know what, we, have, we, we can achieve great things, but we can't do it in and of ourselves. We have, to, we have to have a higher purpose and a higher power to help us be able to achieve and do everything that, that will fulfill us, that will make us significant. To live life in epic proportion is to live by definition outside of yourself. Transcend, transcendently, if you will. To live for something greater than yourself by a means outside of yourself and greater than yourself. It is to be empowered by God to do things far greater and more significant than you could ever do on your own. And as a result, you will fulfill one of our greatest desires as human beings. To be significant. To make a difference in the lives of others and to ultimately be fulfilled. Let me put it to you this way. The epic life is all about discovering, pursuing, and ultimately fulfilling God's plan for your life. Pursuing it reveals his plan to fulfill his preferred future both in and through you. The key is to understand the role that his calling on you plays in this process. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The Bible is full of people who have lived the epic life. These are men and women who have ordered their lives around discovering and pursuing God's preferred future for them. And you know what? They probably didn't even realize it at the time that they were doing it. If you were to ask them, they would probably just tell you that they were simply being obedient to what they believed God was asking of them. There's one in particular who I believe defines by their story what it is to live epically in pursuit of God's calling on them. And his name is Gideon. Let's take a look at Gideon. We're going to take a look today at Judges chapter 6 and verses 11 through 16. That's going to serve as our text for today. That's what's going to get us started. Now we're going to, we're going to go through Judges 6 and 7, but these, these are the verses that I want us to really focus on. But before I read it to you, allow me to give us some context. Now, many of us know, if we've read the Old Testament, that Judges comes right after the book of Joshua. And what we see is, is that we see do God and God do incredible things in, in the first five books of the Bible and with Joshua. And if, if you look at, if you look at, I believe it's at the end of Joshua, um, you see that one of the last verses is, um, and, and it is that 
you know, the, the people did, ended up doing what was right in their own eyes. And that was the beginning of, of some really rough times for, for, for the people, for the children of Israel. And what you'll see is you'll see a pattern develop in Judges that, um, that where we see that the people do evil. And God judges them. That's not what judges are for, but God judges them. He judges them in a way where, you know, he sends calamities their way. And ultimately what happens is the people cry out to God. Say, God, why are you doing this to us? Please help us. And what God does is he raises up a leader called a judge. Now at the time, they were trying, God, it was God's desire for Israel to be a theocracy. God was going to lead. He was going to be the ultimate leader. But he was going to use people called judges, who would kind of serve as go-betweens between the people and him. Now, these judges, they were kind of a, they were, they were prophets, and they were kings. You know, it was an interesting situation, because not only did they proclaim the word of the Lord, but they made judgments on, and they were leaders, and they were military people. All of these things. So, what you see is this pattern developed throughout the book of Judges. You see people that are, you know, you'll see judges come in, they'll judge, God will do great and mighty things through them, lift the people up, and then all of a sudden the people will once again start doing what was right in their own eyes and, you know, worshiping idols and all this other stuff. And that pattern, and you see that pattern go all the way, pretty much all the way through the Old Testament, if you think about it. It goes all the way through Judges. If you look at Kings and Chronicles, you see the whole, the same thing happen in a situation like that. God raises up a leader, does great things, leads the people, you know, back to God. Then he dies. People go back to being evil. You just see this, this, this pattern developing. Well, the same thing happened. This, this is where Gideon was. At the time of Gideon, the nation of Israel was being judged by a group of people called the Midianites. It was the, 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 the tribe of Midian. These were, were people who were, they were Ishmaelites and they were nomadic. And they were terrible at farming. They were terrible at, they couldn't make nothing. They couldn't grow nothing. They couldn't build nothing. But you know what they could do? Brother, they could fight. These guys were warriors, man, and they were warriors of, and they were incredibly skilled. And what they would do is they would go and make war against the, the Israelites. Every year when the, the Israelites would go to try to, to try to harvest their crop to feed their people, they would come in and plunder them. And you could see that in, in the story as, as we pick it up where I'm about to start reading is, is that we're going to find our hero Gideon is, is threshing wheat. Not an uncommon thing to do, right? Back in the day, it's an agrarian society. And how you thresh wheat is you have this pile of, of wheat in front of you, and you take a fork and you throw it up in the air, right? And then what happens is the wind blows the chaff off, and then the wheat, the kernels, the, the fruit falls to the ground. Well, you do this in the open air because, as you could imagine, it gets pretty dusty. It gets pretty nasty. So we find Gideon doing it in a wine press inside of an enclosed area. And you can imagine how nasty and dirty and filthy this was. But he did it so that he could hide the wheat from being plundered by the Midianites. So he'd be able to feed his family during, during this time. Well, let's pick up the story. Follow along with me as I read to you. From the, I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. This is um, Judges chapter 6. Okay, here we go. Pick it up. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree at Oprah which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, 
The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And then something interesting happens. Gideon says to him, I'm just going to read it and then then I'm going to circle back to this. And Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. I'm going to take a little preacher's license here. I hope you don't mind. Because I, I think that this needs to be read and understood in a different, in a different, in a different context. I'll just tell you up front that um, if you were to ask my wife, she would tell you that sarcasm is my love language. If you talk to my enemies, they would tell you that sarcasm is also my hate language. So it's just, I'm sarcastic. I can't help myself. I'm also Irish. It comes with the territory. And I think that what we see here is, I think that, could you, I mean, just picture this. Gideon is inside this hot, nasty wine press threshing weed. He's filthy. He's breathing in this nasty dust. He's just getting just overwhelmed by all of this stuff that's going on around him. He's seen his family oppressed, his nation oppressed, this whole shooting match. And then, and then this, this, this angelic being, this dude stands before him and, and basically taunts him. The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And I don't think he said, please, my Lord. I think he went, please, my Lord. If the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our father recounted to us saying, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us. And has given us into the hands of Midian. I could just, oh man. The contempt in his voice, I could picture it. I can almost hear it. And a funny thing happens. And then the Lord turned to him. No more angel. God shows up. And says some profound words. He says, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. The most powerful five words in the Bible. Right here, my friends. Do not I send you. And he said to him, please, Lord. His attitude changed a little bit. Please, Lord. How can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I'm the least in my father's house. But then the Lord said to him another deep, Deeply profound and powerful statement. But I will be with you. And you will strike the Midianites as one man. So here we have a guy who was, by all accounts, an insignificant man. Now, I don't say that to insult him or to make light of his value as a human being. But as a starting point in the making of a genuine hero. Made that way. Made that way. By his willingness to follow the calling that God had for his life. One who lived an epic life in pursuit of the calling that God had for him. Now the thing I want us to see here is this, and it's important. Is that Gideon was just a guy. Just a regular human being. Just like you and me. He had no particular talents or abilities or that were above or beyond anything or anyone else. 
But there were some attributes that were key to his journey to the epic life that we need to uncover and discuss if we're to accept the challenge of pursuing God's epic life for us. There's four of them that I want us to consider today. Let's get started. If you don't have your listening guide out, take, take it out. Write this down. Pursuing God's epic requires trust. Anybody who has been a follower of Christ has been challenged by something that causes you to question your belief in God. I don't care who you are. Sometimes it's an event. A death or a divorce or a lost relationship or an event or a circumstance or situation that arises that causes us to wonder where God is in the midst of this thing. You know, we've all asked this question, God, where are you? And more often than not, you know what his response is? Do you trust me? It goes to faith. Joe talked about it earlier. It goes to faith. And the question is this. What are you willing to believe? Allow me to give you a working definition of faith that is found at the most critical points of the most profound stories in the Bible. Here it is. Faith is not simply believing that God can. It is believing that God will. It doesn't take much to believe in God's ability to do things. I mean, he's God for heaven's sakes. If the Bible is to be believed, there's nothing that's too great for him. The $64,000 question for us is this. Whether he is willing to do things for us. For our sake. Now, y'all might be sitting over there thinking, well, geez, Kevin. I mean, I look, at, I look at Pastor Timothy. Yeah, I can see God doing, being willing to do great things. Like Pastor Timothy's a great teacher, a great leader. I could see him working through Pastor Joe. Man, he's an awesome worship leader. He's doing great things for God. But me? Come on, man. When God asks us to trust him, he isn't asking us to trust In his ability. He already knows he can. And he knows you know that he can. What he's asking us to trust is his willingness. Gideon is a great example of this because by his own admission, he was a man who was weak and was broken in many aspects of his life. What did he say? He said, I'm the least in my family, which is the least in the tribe, which is the least tribe in the nation. He is the least of the least of the least, and yet God himself stood before him and called him a man of valor, a man of courage, a great leader. Check out verse 16. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. You see, God was challenging Gideon. Do you trust in my willingness to make you into the man that I need at this very moment? The man I meant for you to be since before time itself began. Wow. The calling, the purpose that God had for this man would require him to trust in something that was so far beyond his ability to believe that it would take a series of events and tests over the next little while in order for it to finally click with him. But he had to take that first step. 
He had to be willing to take God at his word, to do a small thing in order to achieve over time something greater than he could have ever possibly imagined. Gideon would ask God to do a series of small things for him. And if you read, and I encourage you, read Judges chapter 6, you will see that Gideon asked God to do a series of small things for him that kind of seemed at first to be a little bit trivial. But you see, they were tests. Once again, not of God's ability to perform them, but of his willingness to do so. Gideon knew that what God was asking of him was far beyond his own ability to do. He knew that the only way that this would happen would be for God to show up big. The first step in the process of living God's epic for him was learning to trust in his willingness to do for him what he said he would. In the New Testament, I think Paul struggled with this as well, but I think from a different perspective. He wanted to believe that he played an even larger role in fulfilling his calling and living epically than he really did. He once begged God to free him from an affliction that was that he believed was holding him back from achieving even greater things than he was already achieving. And God set him straight. And to Paul's credit, he willingly, even gladly, accepted God's answer. This is a familiar passage from 2 Corinthians 12. Take a listen. He says, but he said to me, this is God speaking to Paul. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. First and most important step in living the epic life. Trust. The second is perhaps equally difficult. Write this down. You must learn to be selfless. It's your calling. It's your epic. But you can't fulfill it or achieve it by looking inward. One of the first lessons I had to learn in my journey for living epically was that I was helpless when left to my own devices. God had to show me that he would be my provider in all things and that he would use others in order to make the necessary provision. Gideon would find this out pretty much from the jump when God gave him his first assignment, you see, God had instructed Gideon after he went through a series of these tests. God had instructed Gideon to utterly destroy the symbols of idol worship in his village. Idol worship was that was that was the curse that, that Israel were dealing, was dealing with at the time, as they would constantly. So that sounds simple enough, right? Take down a couple of couple of statues and everything else, no big deal. So, question: Why did God instruct him to take a bunch of other guys with him in order to make it happen? Check out verse or chapter 6 and verse 27. He says this, So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did what the Lord told him. Now I believe, I believe, it's because God wanted Gideon to know, first, that it was a work of God and not him that was making all this happen. And second, that it was important for Gideon to know how important it was to bring others along on his epic so that he may eventually help them fulfill theirs. To be a part of the work of God in someone else's life teaches us that it's not about us, that it's about the work of God being completed in others so that God may get the glory. Now, my guess is, years later, 
These guys spoke of a bond that was forged between them in the midst of this work that God had them do together as he was revealing and fulfilling his calling in Gideon. Paul knew of the importance of emptying himself in the pursuit of a higher calling in Philippians, in, 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 in Philippians 3. Once again, a familiar passage to many of us. Philippians 3 and, and verse 7. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Let's talk about this for just a second. If you go to the previous couple of verses before this, Paul lays out his bona fides, who he is. That he was a Jew among Jews, that he was a Pharisee, that he was one of the learned men of the day, that he was taught by Gamaliel, who was the, the rabbi that you wanted to be taught by, that he was, that he had achieved the pinnacle of Jewish leadership, that he was highly thought of, and when people walked down, when he walked down the street, people knew him and recognized him and honored him. And then he goes on to say, and we know what happened to his life afterwards, that all of that was taken away because he decided to become a follower of Jesus. And what did Paul say? You'd think that, wow, geez, I mean, look at, look at the price I had to pay for this. No. Whatever gain I had, whatever I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Fulfilling our calling, living epically, requires us to live selflessly. It also means coming to terms with this. Number three, write this down. Expect resistance. Not everyone's going to be excited about you pursuing the call that God has given you. Not everyone will cheer you as you seek to live epically. In fact, you, sh- you might be surprised that the people who will not only seem indifferent, but will seek to undermine and sabotage you. People don't like to be reminded that they're broken. And when they see you trying to break out, when they see you trying to achieve God's preferred future for you, they will become angry and envious to the point of seeking your demise. That's another reason why you need to be a part of a community of people who will not only support but will pray for you and for your success and have your back so as to prevent others from sabotaging. Consider Gideon. You'd think that his family and friends would be thrilled that he had heard from God and that through Gideon that they would be set free from the terrible oppression with which they were suffering at the hands of Midian. But such was not the case. In fact, far from it. Check this out. Judges 6 and verse 30. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Gideon's dad, bring out your son that he may die for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. They wanted to kill him for trying to set them free. But an interesting thing happened. Gideon's own father stood up for him among his friends and family. He was so moved and so inspired by his son's courage and willingness to follow God that he stood up for him and was willing to face death alongside of him. You begin to see... I don't know, you begin to see a transformation taking place in the lives of others because one man, one man, was willing to trust and believe in God's willingness to use him to help bring redemption to a group of people. Now, I've got to believe that Gideon was deeply moved as well as strengthened by these people's belief in his calling to the point that they were willing to die to protect him. Resistance is something 
that you must expect if you are to fulfill your calling and live epically. Jesus himself told us that we would face difficulty, sometimes overwhelmingly so. But he also promised, he also promised that he would walk alongside of us as we face it. Which leads nicely to the next attribute, number four of living epically. Write this down. When facing resistance, we must practice perseverance. You, got, you just got to hang in. Perseverance is one of those indispensable attributes of success in any endeavor. The willingness to persevere is a sign of courage and faith. Throughout the Bible, the one thing that sets apart the great men and women of God is the fact that they just won't quit, even in the face of extraordinary difficulty and tribulation. And Gideon was one of them. There's an interesting story that goes behind Gideon coming up with his 300. And it's a little too lengthy to get into today, but once again, I encourage you to read it. It's inspiring. But at the end of the day, Gideon had, there were 10,000 people that showed up that basically was a call to the nation to stand up for the, for the, for the children of Israel. 10,000 showed up. God whittled this down to 300 people. And these weren't 300 of the best people, should I say. These were 300, lack of a better term, misfits. So check this out. Judges chapter 7 and verse 8, he said, So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and they all set, and, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent. Those, 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 those 9,700 people, he sent them back. We don't need you. We'll do it with 300. But he retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now, the camp of Midian had 135,000 men. I'm talking about 135,000 of the fiercest and finest warriors that that part of the world had ever seen up until that point. And above them, overlooking them, was Gideon and his 300 misfits. Now, how do you think Gideon was feeling about his calling right around now? My guess is that a large part of him wanted to return home and forget this whole episode ever happened. But if he had... He would have missed out on seeing and being a part of God, doing something extraordinary. A couple of hundred years later, David faced a similar predicament. He was standing in a camp with his most loyal soldiers and followers, whose wives and children and possessions had been taken away by the Amalekites. The Amalekites, who, by the way, are the same group of people that Gideon was facing in this story. His men were weary of running and fighting and were to the point of rebellion. There was talk of stoning David and returning home. Just, I'm done. I'm going home. I'm going to kill this guy. Be done with it so he won't chase me around anymore. I'm done with this. And when David got wind, he had a choice to make. Would he run and hide, hoping to forget this whole chapter in his life? Or would he persevere on? 1 Samuel 30 and verse 6 answers that question for us. Take a listen. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. Here's the moment of truth, friends, right here. This is the money part of this verse. What did David do? Did he tuck tail and run? No. 
But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Here's something we absolutely must remember. And if you forget every other thing I said here today, please remember what I'm about to tell you. When things look their bleakest, when it seems that there is no hope and you just want to quit, don't. Because more often than not, that is when the greatest breakthroughs and victories are about to happen. If you just hang in and don't quit. It is in these places and at these times that we see God move in extraordinary ways. And if we quit, we will miss out on being a part of God's great epic story. The redemption of the world that he so loves. Write this down. When you learn to trust God, when you strive to be selfless, when you learn to expect resistance and you practice perseverance, prepare for God to do great things both in and through you. Allow me to finish Gideon's story. So Gideon, God comes to him in a dream that night and said, Gideon, I want you to take, I want you to go down into the camp of Gideon. When you hear when you hear the dream that's going to be interpreted, your hand is going to be strengthened. Here's what's really cool. But he said, but if you're afraid, if you're afraid, take your friend with you. You see, so many of us think that if we, if, if, if we show fear, if we, aren't, you know, if we don't put on this facade of, of courage, that God's going to forsake us. Wow, I'm not going to hang out with a guy like you. That's not how he works. God's desire is to make you into the person he needs you to be. And he needs you to be upfront with him and honest, not just with him, but with yourself. So Gideon is in the camp of his enemy. He's probably wondering what the heck he's doing. And when all of a sudden he hears this story that is just by one of the soldiers, that one of the Midianite soldiers, that is just so off the wall, so crazy, that God simply had to be at the root of it. And it dawns on him. It dawns on him that God really is in this thing. And he really is willing to use him as his vessel of redemption for his people. Check this out. Judges 7 and verse 15. He said, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. It dawned on him. He worshipped right there. And he returned to the camp of Israel, a new man. And he says, arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hands. Notice how his attitude changed once he realized that God was not just able, but was willing. By his willingness to follow the calling that God had given him, in spite of all the inherent difficulties, he and a bunch of others got to be a part of God's great plan of saving his people. Gideon and his friends were living the epic life. By learning and experiencing the willingness of God to use ordinary men and women in his extraordinary plan of redemption, these people experienced life that was significant beyond their wildest imagination. I mean, think about it. We're still talking about him 3,000 years later. Paul learned that our greatest breakthroughs and victories and experiences happen when we come to grips with our own brokenness and allow God to work his plan and purpose through us in spite of them. Check out, once again, 
2 Corinthians 12, he says, Therefore, I will, all, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Strength and weakness. It's one of the great paradoxes of our faith. And I might add, one of the key factors to living epically. God has a calling, a purpose, an epic life for each and every person who hears this message. The question is, do you have the faith? Do you have the courage to pursue it? My guess is that there is not one person listening today that doesn't want to see God do great things in and through you. But are you willing to pursue God's calling on you? Are you willing to order your lives around his plan and purpose for his church and become a part of it? Because I've got news for you. We can't do it without you. And besides, why would you not want to be a part of the work of redemption that God is about to unleash in this place at Arden First? It's our time, my friends. It's your time. Invite God to do a great work in you so that he may do a great work through you. Seek God's calling, his purpose for you, and order your life around it. And let the journey to your epic life begin today. Let's pray.